Three times in the last five years, Julia and I have uh, attempted to buy a home. Uh, two out of three times we've been successful. But we've learned something uh, in those experiences. Zillow, you might know Zillow, it's the, the online program you can use to search for houses. Zillow can make a bad house look really good. You laugh because you understand. Paint can cover defects. Pictures can shape what and how you see. Lighting can make a house appear more spacious and clean. You need to go see the house you want to buy. But more than that, you need someone wise to show the house to you. Because your own eyes can fail to see what's obvious to one who knows what to look for. And your own desire or ambition for a house can blind you to the problems in the home that are right in front of you. And so a good realtor will show you the true house. A good inspector will unveil the house's true state to you in the inspection report. Together they will help you see the house as it really is. And in particular moments of kindness, they might even stop you from hanging your deluded Zillow-fueled hopes on this particular house. I begin with this illustration to help us understand what the Apostle Paul is doing in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20. The world wants to convince us, indeed our own sinful hearts want to delude ourselves, that man is, or can be, good enough on his own. Like Zillow, our poets and philosophers, our movies and our music, our religions and our idolatries portray humanity in this light. Some proclaim that man is basically good. Some put a false god over man and, and, and demand that man be good enough to carry that false god on his own. And others simply teach that, yes, there's some things wrong with humanity, with the world, but man needs reform. And he can reform himself or fix himself or change himself with the right leader or the right method or the right system or the right discipline, or the right circumstances. And of course, every human, at one time or another, feels as though they deserve life. If there's a God, what right does he have to judge me? What right does he have to take away my health, or to bring me to death, or judge me with eternal judgment? And like Zillow, man has learned how to cover his defects, how to shape what he sees about himself, how to make himself appear more virtuous, able, clean. But what would we see if we were to look truly at man? Not merely with our own limited eyes, but with a wise guide to show man to us as God sees him. In Romans chapter 1, verses 28 to 32, the Apostle Paul is that wise guide, a realtor, so to speak, showing us man as God sees him, man as he really is. The Apostle's words, like the inspector's report, unveil man's true state. Indeed. Scripture itself teaches us that these apostolic words are not merely human words for us to hear and set aside or, or to balance out with our favorite movie or whatever cultural uh, thoughts are in the air. These words are the word of God given by the Holy Spirit to us through Paul so that we might know with complete confidence, authority, and trustworthiness natural man's true state, depraved. To return to the illustration, man is not a house you want to hang your hopes upon. If salvation depends on how good you can be or how much you can change or what obedience you can produce or what sins you can avoid or what response to God you can accomplish in your own power, you have no hope for salvation. Now, some of us hear that word depraved, and for one reason or another, we grow concerned. 
So let's just define the word depraved from a standard dictionary in English. The Oxford English Dictionary, perhaps the standard dictionary used today, defines depraved in this way, morally corrupt or wicked. Indeed, depraved communicates that moral corruption marks the person or the people or the thing described by that word. Certainly then, depraved, morally corrupt, rightly captures what God reveals about fallen man in Scripture. Let me give you six passages from across Scripture to help us remember what God says about fallen man. Genesis 6, verse 5, just before the flood. The Lord saw that the wickedness or the moral corruption, the depravity of man, was great in the earth. And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. Did the flood solve the problem? No. After the flood, Genesis 8.21, the Lord says the intention of man's heart is evil, morally corrupt from his youth. David in Psalm 51 says of his own life, David, this man chosen by God to be king over Israel, behold, in iniquity or guilt, I was born, and in sin my mother conceived me. Prophet Jeremiah, chapter 17, after David came and went and fell on the edge of judgment, Jeremiah, chapter 17, the prophet tells us, the heart is deceitful above all things and incurable. Incurable, like a terminal illness. Who can understand it? We read Isaiah 59 earlier. This is the fifth of six passages. Their feet run to evil. They're swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. Later in verse 13, we know our iniquities. Transgressing and denying the Lord. Turning back from following our God. Speaking oppression and revolt. Conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. That's the Old Testament though. Okay, number six from the New. Light comes in the world, the one through whom, for whom, all things have been made. The word becomes flesh, dwells among us in glory. And the evangelist tells us in John chapter 3, verse 19, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and humanity loved the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. In Scripture, God reveals natural man not as he wishes to see himself, but as God sees him, as he really is, depraved. Truly, moral corruption, wickedness, marks natural man. And in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 32, the Apostle Paul speaks in one accord with the Scriptures by building upon what the prophets and the evangelists reveal about natural man's depraved state. Sin dominates man as God's judgment against his idolatry. So the Spirit reveals to us through Paul in verses 24 to 25, look there with me, of Romans chapter 1, that sin corrupts what man does with his body. Man's depraved actions, the apostle tells us in verse 24, defile his own body. Then in verses 26 to 27, the spirit reveals that sin doesn't only corrupt what we do with our bodies, sin corrupts what man feels and likes and wants. Same-sex sexual immorality, in verse 27, 26, clearly demonstrates this depravity, this moral corruption of what we feel, what we like, what we want. Now in verses 28 to 32, the Spirit reveals that sin corrupts even what man thinks and wills. We might summarize the main message of these verses in this way. Man's depraved morality demonstrates man's depraved discernment. Let me say that one more time. Man's depraved, morally corrupt morality 
demonstrates man's depraved discernment. In other words, this list of sins and depravity and moral corruption in verses 29 to 32, Paul wants us to see those evil deeds and desires and recognize there's something wrong with man's mind. Let's begin then by prayerfully directing our hearts and with them our eyes and ears to Romans chapter 1, verse 28. Scripture says, And just as they did not deem it worthwhile to acknowledge God, I'm trying to bring out for you some of the, the connections Paul's making, and just as they did not deem it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God gave them over unto a debased or a worthless mind to do what ought not to be done. What's Paul saying in verse 28? In verse 28, the Spirit reveals to us that man's depravity, his moral corruption, extends to his mind. What he thinks and how he wills has been morally corrupted. You see, the focus here is on that word mind. And just to be clear, when we in English hear that word mind, we're primarily thinking of what? What we think. But for Paul, that word mind... We're dealing with three languages here. We have English speakers dealing with Greek writings, and we have a Greek writing, Paul, dealing with Hebrew Old Testament concepts. So when Paul talks about the mind, he's talking about what the Old Testament in Hebrew often means by the word heart. Right? We think of heart, we think of feelings. But even in Genesis, which I read earlier, you heard the Lord say the thoughts of man's heart. So Paul has taken that word heart from the Old Testament. He's using the word mind to refer to it here. When we hear the word mind in Romans 1, we should be thinking not just what we think, it includes that, but also what we choose, what we will, what we decide. And just as the apostle has done twice before now, as he begins, Paul clarifies, yes, our minds are morally corrupt, but this moral corruption comes neither by chance nor by natural events. Man's depraved discernment is not like an old corroded pipe finally bursting because of its age or inferior materials. Something has corrupted man's mind. Sin. Nor is man's depraved mind explained merely by sin, this secondary means. Romans 1.24 identifies sin, the, the wicked ones that flow forth from man's idolatrous heart as the immediate agent. Sin has corrupted man's mind. Sin has distorted what man thinks and how he wills, how he decides. But sin has corrupted man's moral reasoning. Look at verse 28. Because God has determined that sin do so as his judgment upon idolatrous man. God is the ultimate cause. His judgment explains man's depravity. Verse 28 is now the third time that the Spirit has revealed this reality to us through Paul in as many weeks. Verse 24. Third time I'm doing this now. Verse 24. God gave them over. Verse 26. God gave them over. Verse 28. God gave them over. Sin dominates man. Paul's point in this section, Romans 3, 9. Sin dominates man, corrupting his actions, verse 24, his passions, verse 26, and his mind, verse 28. And sin dominates man because God has judged man. Verse 24, verse 26, verse 28. Yes, sin dominates man because God has justly judged Indeed, the apostle has not only repeated three times now that God has judged man, but he has shown us similarly that God has justly judged man. In other words, he has demonstrated that man deserves, man deserves what God has done to him. The word therefore in verse 24 the phrase, for this reason, in verse 26, connect what God has done to what man has chosen. Idolatry. Idolatry is the fundamental sin. So in verse 24, what do we see? 
see the justice of God's judgment. Man dishonored God, so God put man under sin's dominion, so that man now dishonors himself. Verse 26, man exchanged worship for idolatry, so God put man under sin's dominion, so that he now exchanges fruitfulness for futility. Now, once again, the apostle begins verse 28, not merely by explaining that God has judged man, but by explaining that God has justly judged man. Look at how verse 28 begins. And since, or just as, they did not deem it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God gave them over unto a worthless mind. The key words are just as, what the ESV translates as since, just as is the key connector, and then that, that language of worth, or worthwhile, or worthlessness, the concept behind the ESVs, see fit and debased. And of course, just like last week, we had to go back to Genesis to see what was God's good design for sexual function. Now we go back to Genesis 1 to 2 to understand what was God's good design for the mind, for what we think and how we will. We've said this three times now. God made man uniquely. In his image. This is our honor. It sets us off from the beasts. It sets us off from the fish. It sets us off from the birds. God made man to know him. And to glorify him. Which is a way of saying God made man to know that he is supremely worthy. And then to live in such a way that demonstrates that he is supremely worthy. And in order to do this, God made man with what we might call a moral faculty. A moral faculty, a mind and a will. So that we might understand who God is. So that we might discern what God wills. And so that we might decide to act accordingly for our good and for his glory. In line with the purpose for which God created us and endowed us with such gifts. There's a moment here for us to just simply marvel, isn't there? Look at the animals. Look at your dog at home, your cat at home, the fish in your tank. They can't know God. They can't read his word and understand who he is and, and know how he wants us to live and then decide to live in such a way that glorifies him. We're made in the image of God. We can think. We can desire. We can will. Made in the image of God, we should marvel at that. We're piles of dirt walking around, knowing things, willing things, deciding things. It's remarkable. But look at verse 28. Man used this moral faculty, the mind and the will God gave them to know and to glorify him. Man used this moral faculty to weigh God in his judgment and deem him worthless. That's how the apostles depicting man's idolatry in the first phrase of verse 28. It's God-given mind. Man knows God, weighs him, judges him, and then says, knowing you is just not worth it. I don't even need to think about you. I don't need to live in reference to you. You're just worthless. As a brief aside, brothers and sisters, do we perceive our sin and idolatry in this biblical way? When we sin, even the smallest of sins, when we refuse to worship God as he deserves, when we love created goods over our creator, when we live, even for a moment, without reference to God and to his word, and even when we live as though God is our pet, or a really important person, but not worthy of supremacy in all things, we are using the very gifts God has given us to behold his glory and to discern his worth and to display his worth in such a way that we are blasphemously declaring he's worthless. Not worth knowing. His word's not worth discerning. It's not worth deciding to live as his image and glorify him. That's the first phrase of verse 28. And the conjunction since or just as correlates what man has done 
with his God-given mind to what God has done to man's God-given mind. What has God done to man's mind? He has caused sin to corrupt it. Look at verse 28. God gave them over. Again, this is the language of judgment. Just as man judged God, deemed him worthless, now God has judged man. That language of giving over is the idea of judging someone by putting him under another's control. Whose control, whose power did God put man under? God put man under sin's power. Romans 3.9, such that the sinful desires that flow forth from our own wicked hearts now control man. Romans 1.24, and corrupt man. To say it simply, kids, even you can understand this. Man's sin dominates man because God judged man. Man's sin dominates man because God judged man. And what is the result of sin's dominion? Has following our hearts, proving true to ourselves, acting, fulfilling on everything that comes out of our hearts, proved to be the life-giving freedom that sin promises each time we are tempted? No. The result, look at verse 28, is that man's God-given moral faculties, his mind and his will, have become worthless. Sin corrupted them. God gave them over, the apostle writes in verse 28, unto a debased or a depraved or a worthless mind. And look at the final phrase of verse 28. What then happens with that mind? The final phrase of verse 28. God gave them up to a worthless mind to do what ought not to be done or to do worthless things. God determined that man's sin would carry man's mind into worthlessness so that with his worthless mind, man now wills to do worthless things. Let us behold once more the justice of our God. God made man with moral faculties, a mind and a will, so that man might comprehend God's glory, discern God's will, and choose to glorify God. Instead, man used his God-given mind and will to discount God's glory and to disdain God's will, choosing instead to treat God worthlessly in his life and in his world. So God judged man by giving them over to sin's power. Sin dominates man in such a way that it corrupts his mind and his will so that man now thinks, chooses, and acts worthlessly. This is Romans chapter 1, verses 21 to 22. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Created to know God, what a marvelous privilege. Dog can't know God. Fish in the sea can't look up to the heavens and wonder at the glory of their creator in the stars. Created to know God to discern with our minds his supreme worth and to decide upon displaying his supreme worth, man's depraved mind, morally corrupted mind, now knows depravity, discerns depravity, and decides upon doing depravity. Depraved acts, Romans chapter 1, verse 24. Depraved passions, Romans chapter 1, verse 26. And now depraved minds. Romans chapter 1 verse 28. This moral corruption extends to every part of who man now is in Adam. This depravity is natural man's desperate and wicked state. And it exists due to sin's dominion over man because of God's judgment of man. You are here. Outside of Christ, not placed your trust in Christ, you've not been brought out of Adam into him, I must tell you, you are not all right. You are in a desperate and wicked state, desperately in need of one to save you. Christian, when we look out at the world, 
This world is not all right. And the problem is not political or social or economical. The problem is with man's moral corruption that extends from what he does to what he feels to how he thinks and now decides. Let me also say here what I'm not saying, though. Neither I nor Paul are saying that man is as bad as he could be. When Paul gets to Romans 13, he's going to talk about government. What is the point of government? To restrain man's evil. In other words, we still live in a world where there's common grace, where God, through institutions like government and the family and his kindness to individuals, restrains sin's full effect from completely consuming man and society and all creation. But truly, every part of who man is has been corrupted by sin. To return to our illustration from the beginning, Zillow illustration, the apostle is like a realtor. This is too silly to say. He's not like a realtor. He's the apostle inspired by the Spirit, writing, carried along to write exactly what God wants him to say so that we might know what's true. But he's like a realtor. His words are like the inspection report. Let us then see fallen man as God sees fallen man, as man really is depraved, morally corrupt. Despite man's Zillow-like efforts to cast himself in a better light, man is not the one upon which we should hang our hopes. You cannot be good enough. You cannot be not bad enough. No man or woman or boy and girl can give you or girl could give you the help you need. Man is not the one upon which we should hang our hopes for salvation. But Paul is not a realtor who expects us to take his word for it from afar. To prove his point, about man's depraved discernment, his depraved mind, his morally corrupt thinking and willing, Paul now takes us on a tour of this condemned house so that we might see man's depravity for ourselves. Look to verses 29 to 32 with me. And as I read, two things that are important to note. Number one, Recognize that verses 29 to 32 are grammatically completely dependent on verse 28. Paul is simply describing man under sin's dominion because of God's judgment. Number two, if you are here as a Christian, what I have prayed that the Lord will work in your heart, and what I think he should work in our hearts in at least two ways from a reading like this, is number one, to recognize how great a salvation God has worked for us in Christ. We have been brought out of Adam, and by God's grace brought into Christ. Number two, as a church and as individuals, as we read this sin, as we read this list, we ought to be reminded of where sin remains in our hearts and minds, and hate it all the more. Verses 29 to 32. They are, verse 29, entirely filled with every unrighteousness, with wickedness, with greediness, with malicious evil. They are, still in verse 29, thoroughly characterized by envy, by murder, by strife, by deceit, by malice. They are gossipers, verse 30, slanderers, God-haters, violently prideful, self-exalters, blowhards, contrivers of evils, their parents, they constantly disobey. They are, verse 31, senseless, faithless, heartless, merciless. Verse 32, although they know what God legally requires, that those who do such things deserve death, they not only do these things, but they also encourage those who do them. Man's depraved morality demonstrates man's depraved discernment. In other words, Paul is listing out all of man's moral corruption 
that we might recognize the truth of what he said in verse 28. Something's wrong with man. Something has happened to man. Because of our idolatry, God has put man under sin's dominion, and sin has corrupted our minds, and the evidence of this is right here in this list. Here is man in Adam. Not as he thinks he is, but as God sees him, as he really is. Man with his depraved mind, look at verse 32, still knowing and discerning that his moral corruption deserves death. And man with his depraved mind deciding to do that depravity anyway and to commend that depravity in others. Man is no hope for salvation. Man in Adam, condemned by God and dominated by sin, has no power to save himself, has no ability to reform himself, has no hope to deliver himself. Man in Adam cannot want or be or will what God requires of him for life. His moral corruption, verse 28, extends even to his discernment. Sin dominates and corrupts what he thinks and wills. And so Rousseau, I think it was Rousseau who said, man is born free and everywhere is in chains. In other words, Rousseau is saying man's born good and it's all the circumstances and the societies and the political situations of life that, that mess him up. God in scripture says, no, in Adam now man is born in darkness and everywhere he loves the darkness and everywhere, because he loves the darkness, he does dark deeds. This is not merely man's rebellion. It is sin's dominion over man and God's judgment upon man. But I get ahead of myself. That's the conclusion from verse 32. Let us allow the apostle to lead us like a realtor. Let him guide us so that we might see man in Adam as God sees him. And so to continue the illustration, we begin in verse 29 with an overview. The apostle is, as it were, walking us around the house. What do we see generally among fallen man in history, among the nations? Look at verse 29. What do we see in our histories, in our societies? All manner of unrighteousness or injustice. All manner of evil, all manner of covetousness, all manner of malice, every kind of injustice, every imaginable evil, insatiable greed, and incessant desire to harm and hurt others. Such depravity fills man's histories and societies. But the apostle continues. To continue the illustration, he walks us now inside the house to see man's general character. And so we resume in verse 29. What is this house full of? What is man in Adam full of? They are full of envy, of murder, of strife, of deceit, of maliciousness. In other words, man is thoroughly characterized by a jealous resentment of others by murderous thoughts and murderous deeds, by unending and bitter conflicts, by deceit and treachery, by an evil disposition to destroy others. All these thoroughly characterize man in Adam. And now in verse 30, the apostle, so to speak, takes us room by room, letting us see beyond what the paint covers and the light distorts and the social media pictures hide letting us see fallen man as God sees him, as he truly is, depraved. Verse 30, the apostle says they are gossipers. In other words, they are those who spread destructive rumors about one another. They are slanderers, those who destroy themselves and others by intentional lies. God-haters, those who despise and dishonor and disregard God. Insolent, haughty, boastful. Three words that give us a picture of man as those who pridefully use violent acts and words to exalt themselves at the expense of others. 
inventors of evil. In other words, man in Adam are those who use their God-given minds to think up and to create evils never before seen or imagined or possible in the world. And they are disobedient to their parents. And isn't that a condemnation in our society? Because by nature, as Americans, we look at that and we think, what's so bad about that? Those who dishonor and disobey the authorities through whom God gave them life. And finally, to the end of the illustration in verse 31, the apostle takes us back outside the house because we not only need to see the depravity that's there, but we need to see the virtue that's absent, don't we? Remember one time looking at a house in Augusta, there was no AC unit. It was not just the problems with the house, it's what's not in the house. What's missing from man? Verse 31, they are senseless, having abandoned wisdom. They are faithless, having abandoned truth and promise-keeping. They are heartless, having forsaken even the natural affections that ought to exist among kin. And they are ruthless or merciless, having abandoned compassion and pity. Such is man's desperate and wicked state. Man is depraved, morally corrupt. And when we look honestly, we can observe man's depravity in history and in society in our neighborhoods, and among the nations, in our homes, and in our hearts. I think, however, that many would agree with this biblical perspective, at least in part. These are observable facts. The violence carried out by the most beastly predators of the animal kingdom, devouring lions, deadly crocodiles, dangerous sharks, cannot compare with what man has done to man. How many of you have been viciously assaulted by an animal? Maybe bitten by a dog, bitten by a shark. A couple of you, devout, not the shark, the dog, I think. Devoured by a lion. How many of you have been viciously attacked in words and actions by another man? Ooh, yes, but wait, what's the next question? How many of you, how many of us, have not only been attacked by our fellow man, but how many of us, with our words, with our actions, have degraded, dishonored, destroyed those made in God's image? The destruction wreaked by the worst natural disasters, quakes, tsunamis, storms, cannot compare with the havoc and ruin that man has caused among man and in this earth. Man's moral corruption is self-evident, but the key question is, what is its source? Do these evils exist only because of man's circumstances? In other words, would, would man's moral corruption cease if we could just give him enough food, or enough electricity, or enough water, or the right government, or enough property? I think as Americans we can say, no. Does man do such wicked and worthless deeds because he just doesn't know better? No. Man's depraved morality demonstrates man's depraved discernment. Sin has corrupted his thoughts and his will. Look at verse 32. First word of verse 32. Although. What does that word communicate? It means that Paul is about to say something that if it's true, ought to negate the main point he's making. So he's going to tell us, it's not that man doesn't know. Although man knows God's righteous decree, that those who do such things deserve to die, they not only keep doing them, but give approval to those who practice them. In other words, by nature, man still knows that such worthless and wicked deeds desires, and dispositions deserve death. God created man with moral faculties, a mind and a will that are still able, even after the fall, to discern what God requires and to understand that sin deserves death. We might act like beasts, 
but we still know better. Lions don't put other lions to death for moral reasons. Dogs don't experience moral guilt. Crocodiles cannot distinguish good from evil, but fallen man still can and still does. His corrupted mind still knows and discerns. The apostle tells us in verse 32 that those who sin deserve death. And yet, and here is the worthlessness of man's mind under sin's dominion because of God's judgment. And yet, man still chooses to live more violently than lions. Don't excuse yourself from that. Jesus says, you say, I've not murdered my brother. Jesus says, you call your brother a fool? You're liable of judgment. Man still chooses to live more violently than lions, more degradingly than dogs, and more viciously than crocodiles. Such an unhinged mind is God's judgment. With his depraved mind, man still knows what God requires, discerns sin's deadly end, death, and makes a decision, decides to sin anyway. Indeed, his depraved mind not only determines to keep doing sin, but agrees with others when he perceives sin as sin. Truly, man's mind has become worthless. Man's depraved moral acts demonstrate man's depraved moral faculty. Sin has corrupted the mind. What good is a moral faculty, a mind and a will, so corrupted and dominated by sin that it can know God, discern his will to some extent, and still choose and cheer on death? Is that what Moses says to the people of Israel when he gives them the law? Yahweh, through Moses, says, I'm for your good always. Here's this law. Israel chooses death. Few of us with our God-given minds would discern the difference between fresh water and a septic tank and choose to drink from the septic tank. But again and again, each time man sins, he knows sin's deadly end and chooses it anyway. I need not give examples. We can all think of examples. But is this reality not evident in the entertainment we love to consume? Whether in violent video games political discourse, movies and music, talk shows and novels. Man not only decides to do worthless and wicked deeds, man loves to see and to listen to other men do worthless and wicked deeds. Why? Because sin corrupts his moral faculty, his mind and his will, as God's judgment for his idolatry. What the Spirit reveals in verses 28 to 32 is that man with his God-given mind perceived God, discerned his worth, and decided to despise him as worthless. So God made man's mind worthless by sin's corrupting power. His worthless mind can know sin's consequence, but still decides to do and to delight in sin. Sin corrupts what he thinks and how he wills. Truly, man is depraved and desperate, inescapably under sin's dominion, because of God's judgment. And so Paul says in verses 16 to 17, I'm not eager to come to you in, in Rome and teach you the law. There's a right place for the law to teach the renewed mind how to live. Paul says in Romans 1, 16 to 17, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that results in salvation for everyone who believes I hope you see from our passage today, dear friends, why only God's power exerted through the gospel can save man, and why only Christ's righteousness revealed in the gospel can justify man before God. The law reveals what God requires. It's one word, love. It's not a hard law. Just love God and love your neighbor. The law reveals what sin produces, death. It's a clear consequence, but the law cannot change man's depraved state under God's judgment. The law has no power to free man from sin's dominion or to renew what sin has corrupted. So when the law comes to deprave man, it produces only condemnation, only death. 
because sin has so corrupted man's moral faculty that he will know what God requires and still choose death. That's not only true of the Old Testament law. It's true of our legalism. Our negative legalism that says you can be saved if you just don't do this long list of things. Our positive legalism that says you can save man if you just have the right video games and the teen wing or the right programs for children or, or, or the right music to make people feel a certain way so they can make a decision for Christ. That's just legalism. We can teach man who God is. We can teach man what God requires regarding faith in him and love for others. We can teach man sin's consequence by disciplining him and exhort him to live righteously and to worship holily. We can remind man of God's supreme worth by all kinds of means, revivals, youth groups, songs. But we cannot liberate man from sin's power. We cannot renew his mind such that he decides upon God because sin dominates his mind and his will. Despite man's Zillow-like image of himself, he is depraved, morally corrupt. His actions are depraved, verse 24. His passions are depraved, verse 26. His mind and will are depraved, verse 28. Sin dominates man because God has judged him, so man cannot save himself. To return to the illustration, natural man is a foreclosed and condemned house. The pipes have burst. The foundation is cracked. The circuits are fried. The wood is warped. The windows are broken and the roof has caved in. I tried to come up with a list that men at this church and some women at this church couldn't fix. The house still stands, but it is inescapably deteriorating toward its final destruction. And that's why the gospel is good news. The gospel is not you must do. The gospel is not a message about what man must do or be. Because the gospel announces what God has done in Christ to save a people for himself from depraved man in a way that we could never save ourselves and with a salvation that we do not earn and could never deserve. To return to the illustration, none of us would look at that house and buy that house, let alone live in it. Having read such an inspection report, we would flee, find a better home. How many of us reading this list in Romans 1, 28 to 32 would live among fallen men? If we weren't ourselves belonging to fallen man, and even when brought out of fallen man, still part of it. Yet we hear in the gospel that God freely loved depraved man. This is John 3, 16. God chose the condemned house. Not, not just to... to Take another report. God loved depraved man by sending his own son to live among depraved man and for us in all our God-hating depravity. Such is the love of God. Our, worthly, our worthiness did not compel his love. God was not deluded by man's Zillow-like vision of man. John chapter 1, God himself knew what was in man. And in love, God himself moved in to live among depraved man as a man. Able to be wounded by man. Able to be killed by man. Able to be slandered by man. Able to be gossiped about by man. Why did he come? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. To do for his depraved people what neither we nor the law could do for ourselves. Man's fallen state is so desperate, so wicked, that he cannot be reformed or renovated. He must be torn down and made entirely new. He must be put to death and raised to life. Praise God, there is one who both kills and raises to life. And so God joined himself to fallen man in Christ to make man new. Not only so that Christ might live among us in love, but so that he might die for us in love. Now, even a depraved man, sustained by common grace, might give his life for someone good. But Christ died for us. In all our ungodly depravity, suffering the death we not only deserved, but the death, Romans 1.32, we knowingly chose. To 
Do we not marvel at this? This is the wonder of the cross. The all-worthy one became a worthy man so that he might be treated worthlessly by worthless man for his people's worthless decisions and desires and deeds. And in his death, God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. He condemns sin in the flesh, overcoming sin's power over man and satisfying his justice such that depraved man might now be saved. So that God might fulfill his loving promise to bring many from depraved man through death and out of their depravity into a new humanity. Made new by God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. A new humanity where the spirit reigns rather than sin where the blessing of God flows forth rather than condemnation, and where the mind and the will are renewed by the Spirit in a way that we could never renew it ourselves. A new humanity where sin's power is broken and depravity is put off slowly, but truly. And how does God bring his beloved out of their depravity into this salvation? Isn't this the wonder? Not by their power, but by his, by his grace. The power he abounds to us in Christ Jesus by his spirit when the gospel is proclaimed or preached or taught or shared or sung about. Depraved man must be born again to enter this new kingdom. Depraved man must be brought by God's own power out of Adam and into Christ. And when the gospel is proclaimed, God works powerfully through that gospel and only through that gospel to save depraved men and women and boys and girls. Unless we grasp the depth of man's depravity, we will not boast in the power of this gospel. Unless we see man in Adam as God sees him, as he really is depraved, we will not hope in God alone for salvation. But a church that understands natural man's true state becomes a people that abounds in prayerful gospel ministry to one another in their neighborhoods, and among the nations, because we have become convinced that only God's power, exerted through, wondrously exerted through the gospel, can save. And only Christ's righteousness, revealed in the gospel, can justify man before God. Let us pray that God would continue to renew our minds and work such an understanding among us. God, you are kind to give us your word.